Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another edition of Nakubo in Brief. This is a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers where we talk about some of the issues facing colleges and universities. I'm Liz Clark, I'm Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo, and today I am joined by Susan Johnston, President and CEO of Nakubo, and Jim Hundreiser, Vice President for Consulting. Um, Susan, Jim, how are you doing and where are you calling in from today? <laughs> well, I'm doing fine and I'm calling from my kitchen in my condo in the DuPont Circle area. On a normal day, I walk to work. It's pretty nice, very close to the White House. And what I've found from working at home is that I'm also on the flight path to the White House. So if you hear any noise in the background, it might be the helicopters flying back and forth to the White House. It's pretty busy these days. <laughs> okay. And Jim, where are you? Hi, Liz. I'm in my living room slash office slash dining room slash kitchen, all at the same time <laughs> in my spacious 500 square foot apartment, also in Washington, D.C., and also about uh, six blocks from the White House. So Susan and I are in a similar flying pattern uh, that comes across and can be very loud. So we'll hope that doesn't happen while we're on our time <laughs> okay. together. <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed. I'm uh, in suburban Maryland near National Harbor, where many of our listeners have been to conferences and conventions with my husband working from home and my fifth grader also at home. I've been relegated to a makeshift office in our guest room these days uh, under the uh, social distancing rules. Um but uh, today we, we really want to talk about some of the issues facing colleges and universities. And uh, let's, let's first talk about some things that have happened at Nakubo before we roll into what's on the minds of our member business officers. So Nakubo is known for bringing together college and university business officers at our professional conferences. We actually had two large events scheduled for March and April. Susan, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the decision-making process uh, that Nakubo had to go through regarding our February and March conferences as the COVID-19 pandemic was emerging here in the United States. Well, sure, uh, Liz. It was actually three meetings because we had linked Nakubo's board meeting to the student financial services uh, meeting. And, you know, in hindsight, all of this was a complete no-brainer. It was an easy decision to make. 
if you knew what we know now. But at the end of February and early March, we were concerned about what we were hearing coming out of the Northwest. Our meetings were scheduled in Seattle and in Portland, and uh, that's really where the heart of the action was related to the coronavirus in, uh, in the winter. And so we were monitoring the reports that were coming out from the Northwest. We were concerned about um, members' uh, health and safety. We were concerned about staff members if they went to the meetings. But, you know, we're a business as well. And so we were looking at our financial uh, obligations to hold these meetings and expected revenue. My guess is that Anybody listening from a college knows exactly what we were going through. Um, so we uh, watched uh, we watched health reports. We considered our financial and legal obligations, but we were increasingly concerned about the health reports. And so um, the staff weighed all the options. We estimated costs, um, and we decided that it was um, in our best interest and our members' best interest to cancel uh, two very popular meetings, the Student Financial Services meeting and the Higher Education Accounting Forum. Uh, both had lots of registrants. Now, because this had uh, reputational and financial concerns as well as safety concerns, I also checked with our executive committee of our board to make sure that we were all on the same page uh, with this and they agreed with the staff decision. So on March the 6th, we made the decision to cancel these three meetings, uh, and one of those being our board meeting. And like uh, lots of classes on campuses, our board meeting went virtual. Uh, those other conferences as well are going virtual. So we've learned to um, be a little nimble in responding to the needs of our members, but uh, also taking care of the health and safety issues. Thank you for that background, Susan. It's so true how perspective changes over time, and uh, uh, it's incredible to think about the, the questions that were quickly answered and, and the answers that uh, we had to, to come up with and the, and the guidance we had to seek out along the way. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the board meeting moved online, as did those two programs, one providing education uh, for college and university bursars, the other focused on accounting in higher education. Uh, at the same time uh, that we've launched those as online programs, Nakuo had to create an entirely new slate of programming in response to the coronavirus crisis. Our member institutions, colleges and universities across the country are really in need of some guidance and advisement on how to respond to the many questions they're facing. Jim, can you provide some examples of this new programming and, and talk a little bit about which topics colleges and universities are interested in right now? So um, it's um, it's interesting to see how quickly we've responded to this as a sector as a whole, and uh, how interested folks have been in very uh, informal uh, processes, such as we're having a town hall every Tuesday uh, to engage uh, members to give them updates on uh, uh, 
of federal uh, things that are coming out and state issues that are happening, trying to engage members uh, with quick information as soon as they as soon as we get it so that they can have it. And we've also offered a, a webinar series that has been wildly popular with a couple of thousand people now registered uh, to attend uh, these sessions. So uh, people are eager and hungry for information and we're trying to give it to them in ways that is sh short. Uh, we're trying to keep it to 30 minutes, uh, although I know many of the team are now responding to hundreds of emails or responses that we're getting within those sessions. Uh, but we're trying to engage in every way possible, whether that be by phone or email or or short uh, programming efforts. And the topics are, um, are, are varied, but, you know, they probably the more significant ones are liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Uh, we know that it's a massive issue that institutions are trying to consider how much revenues will they uh, lose for the rest of this semester or the fall or the summer um, and really trying to figure out with so many summer conference and other programs uh, being uh, eliminated what does that mean uh, certainly uh, every day it seems like there's another article about refunds uh, in the uh, higher ed magazines trying to understand uh, what are the compliance uh, realities around refunds for room and board. Now fees are being estimated or asked for. Uh, tuition is now being asked for uh, back. And, um, you know, th this is uh, unsustainable for institutions to give those dollars back. Many are still trying to understand the CARES Act, FEMA, state dollars, governor dollars that they can allocate to institutions. How much will they get? I know many were uh, thankful for the surge in dollars that they received, yet for many institutions, it was a million or two million dollars. Again, everyone grateful for it, but uh, they might have been giving back to students five, seven, ten million dollars uh, in uh, room board fees alone. So lots of issues there. And then I think the other things they're talking about is enrollment for the fall um, and scenario planning. What what will we, you know, will we be open by fall? Will we be open by spring? Will we be open by a year from fall? And uh, Susan, as you were mentioning, the March uh, 6th is the date we made the decision. That seems like a lifetime ago. I know for some, we can't even imagine the notion of not having school open by fall. And yet for others, they're really starting to think that through. And so that's scenario planning is just critical for them. I know my son goes to a small private Catholic school and his principal recently held a town hall meeting where she walked through what it would mean if she didn't charge tuition to students who are now learning online. And she walked through the implications of having no revenue from the small school lunch program that they offer and the after school program that they offer. And this is one small school with a few hundred students. So, Jim, you mentioned liquidity. Um, can you maybe extrapolate that kind of K-12 example to what the cash flow concerns are for colleges? When, when you say liquidity, 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 can you uh, just uh, provide a few more examples as to the challenges and, and what they are for colleges? Sure. And, you know, they're, they're vast, right? So this is a time when uh, institutions are typically less, they have less cash on hand because it's, the, it's nearing the end of their fiscal year 
while there is usually summer revenue that is coming, starting to come in because of summer school courses and programs. Uh, so there's a potential loss of summer school revenue. There's the potential loss of summer conference revenue. There's also, for many institutions, a gigantic loss in athletic revenue. And so I think the NCAA said that they expected a $400 million loss in revenues from canceling all sports from um, March Madness forward. And that, you know, those dollars, a great deal of those dollars go directly to the institutions. And so, uh, you know, those are some of them, plus states are beginning to say for state institutions are being able to say, we're not sure we're going to be able to make your payments or uh, you, you will have less cash starting uh, July 1st uh, in the new fiscal year. And so institutions are really having to think through how much cash do they have on hand? Uh, what is their line of credit? Um, how much available cash might they have um, in order to meet payroll uh, throughout the rest of this academic year and into the next? Jim, we've been we've been hearing about some colleges who were struggling financially even before this crisis emerged. Uh, how, how is this situation? Uh, I guess two questions for you. How is this situation exacerbating some of their concerns? And then, uh, in response to what you just said, are those concerns about liquidity and cash flow universal? Are they questions that? all colleges are facing or just those that had previous financial challenges? You know, for some that were struggling, I think the struggle also came with the inability or the challenge to make decisions. And so, um, you know, probably the data suggested some programs should be reduced or eliminated. Probably some activities that were going on campus should be reduced or eliminated. And yet, you know, when you're trying to stay true to your mission and trying to serve a variety of populations, it's hard to make those reductions. I think for those institutions that were struggling, uh, this has helped push them forward to make the tough decisions that they need to make. And I think they're mindful of how hard they are, but but this is just the reality. In order to thrive uh, in a future state, they need to make some reductions now. But I think there are literally uh, thousands of institutions who have had to take a moment of pause to be able to question for themselves, how do they do this? Certainly the mid-sized uh, public institutions that are now, you know, this week we're seeing them talking about 20, 25% reduction in state funding. I think other mid-sized uh, private institutions that, you know, probably had a strong and healthy balance sheet. You know, there's, there's vulnerabilities in that model when your primary driver is, your revenue driver is enrollment. That, you know, bodies need to show up, whether that be virtually or face to face. And, uh, residence halls at the private and public institutions, you know, provide real revenue. And so to think of the fall semester even being completely online with residence halls empty and other, uh, revenue sources that come are, you know, going to have a real impact on the institution. So, uh, I'm not sure anyone is immune. I was on a call yesterday with, um, you know, top elite institutions and they were even talking about how are they moving to maybe having a hundred million dollars in liquidity, uh, that they had not been anticipating before. And, you know, for some of our listeners, that's a mind boggling. That's our whole budget is a hundred million dollars. And yet even the big, even the big ones are saying we are reevaluating our endowment and our investment strategy. And how are we ensuring that we have dollars available? You know, I'd like to jump in on this a little bit because some of the public institutions we know 
are just now recovering, or maybe not even yet recovering from 2008 and 9, the states haven't um, returned to the level of support that, um, that these institutions saw before the Great Recession. And so for this to come on top of that, I think is uh, one big struggle that a lot of public institutions are going to face. Another area that I think affects both the publics and the privates is uh, what we expect to be a decline in philanthropy. We know that philanthropy uh, stays fairly strong in higher education, but, uh, and you know, if the market uh, continues to crawl up out of the hole it was in a few weeks ago, we might see philanthropy kick in a little bit, but most schools are not focusing on uh, raising dollars right now. Uh, they um, have put that on hold. Maybe they're focusing on connecting uh, with with friends. It's friend raising time and not fundraising time. And Jim also mentioned uh, a healthy balance sheet for a lot of of privates. Uh, the endowment is something that uh, we also have to pay attention to going forward. Even next, you know, this next upcoming year we're likely to see reductions in the spending from the endowment for uh, these private institutions. And certainly over the next three to five years, as we see the decline in at least this year's uh, endowment go forward and be processed through the spending policy, there will be a decline in what uh, spending policies will support. And we also know that from endowments, about 50% of that spending traditionally has been going to support students. Another 25% supports academic programs. And so there's a lot of um, potential reduction in what institutions have available uh, through normal uh, processes to support students who will need more support than they have in the past. And I think that's a great point, Susan, about the state schools and their um, allocations. I, I I don't know of many schools that are at pre-2008, 9, 10 uh, state funding levels, uh, maybe Tennessee, I'm, I'm, but I'm not positive that there's any. Uh, and so if you you were still crawling out of that and now it's going to be reduced again, you know, hopefully only for a year or two, but those are going to be tough reductions uh, for some institutions that have been running leaner the last five to seven years than they had the last 25 years before that already. It's it's not just a challenge as to how states are going to be spending their revenues, which is what I think we've been looking at in most in the most recent years in regards to higher education spending by states. But the challenge really now is how much revenue are states actually going to have to allocate uh, uh, once we come out of uh, the social distancing circumstance, uh, people have spent less in retail stores, they have spent less at uh, uh, restaurants, and the tax revenues that states may have anticipated are simply not going to be there. So it's going to be higher ed that is, is going to be facing cuts, as well as all of the other public programs that state and local governments uh, support. Um, Susan, you've just rolled through uh, 
some very major challenges, uh, enrollment uh, pressure for potential decline in philanthropy, a potential decline in what endowments can do to support their institutions, this challenge of state funding. Uh, you are a college board member at two different institutions of higher education. Where are you starting? What questions have you been asking of or about those institutions? Well, uh, I think Jim anticipated a lot of the things that we're talking about uh, on these different boards. One is scenario planning. Uh, it's, you know, worst case, what um, is next semester? I think we've skipped over the summer. We've decided it's going to be online. There probably won't be any summer camps and so on. But what's the fall going to look like? Um, what is enrollment going to look like? Uh, I think we're looking at a longer yield season. Uh, we're not going to just count on that May deadline, but it's going to take longer this year to find out who's going to be coming to school. I think it was uh, uh, something like 30% of students are looking at uh, going to uh, uh, cheaper places than they had intended to go to, perhaps, or they're looking at taking a time out away. So what what's going to be happening with enrollment is a very big question, and uh, that's something that board members want to want to hear. Um, we want to know about capital projects, uh, what's going on there. If there's something uh, being constructed on campus, what's the workforce uh, doing? Uh, are there safety measures in place for the workforce? How's the supply chain? Can you get the products that you need? Um, can you get your HVAC system? Are they coming from China? Has China opened back up and can supply the things that you need? Jim mentioned liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. It's another thing that we want to know about. What's the cash flow with your different scenarios? Where are you going to see the cash flow? Do you have your line of credit in place? Does it need to be increased? I want to know how uh, in the institution's being affected by the CARES Act. Um, has the institution applied for the things it might be eligible for? What distribution is it, is it, is it expecting to get uh, through the state? I want to know where the endowment is and what we, um, I think personally, I think it's a bad time to start making changes, but what are we um, doing uh, with the endowment and what are the implications for endowment spending going forward? What's happening with state funding um, is another question. And I think, uh, although it comes at the end of the list, I think it's really important for board members to check in on the health and safety of the president and the staff, the leadership staff. This is an extraordinarily stressful time to be in a leadership position. And I think boards ought to be checking in to make sure that they're not working 24 hours a day. They're not uh, taking on more work and more stress than is um, healthy. Um, and I think a final question for boards might be, uh, how do they normally talk about risk and how will they talk about it going forward? Uh, institutions should have, boards should have been doing um, either black swan exercises or something that I've heard called a, a pre-mortem. Uh, what could happen to us that could be mortal to the institution? 
How do we plan for it? And, and I'm not sure institutions have been very good at this. Uh, corporations are much better at risk management than higher ed is. And that's probably something that we should see in the future, uh, doing a much better job with risk. That's a great one, Susan. I, I, people have said, you know, who could have ever imagined colleges would close as quickly as they did? And I said, look back at uh, Katrina and Wilma, um, when I think of Loyola uh, in New Orleans and uh, all the New Orleans schools and uh, Tulane being told, you know, yes, we'll give you all this insurance money, but you've got to create the infrastructure so that if another hurricane came, you could be operational within days. And uh, for students, meaning it would be all online and how many other institutions that, oh, that'll never happen to us. So we don't have to worry about it when indeed we could have been using the New Orleans schools as an example of how we would manage risk very differently and how few of us really did that. So uh, I, I think that's a great, great example of how institutions uh, weren't as prepared as they probably could have been, but hard for anyone to imagine it would have been at this magnitude that we all would have had to face it. But uh, it, it certainly is. Uh, we're we're aware now. That's for sure. <laughs> right. There is no shortage of factors impacting the sector right now, and uh, we have certainly learned that. Listen, Jim, that there's no shortage of scenarios to plan for, and things can always be unimaginably worse than. Uh, uh, maybe the, the quote unquote unimaginable scenario mapped out. Yeah. What have we been saying? We've been saying a uh, bad, horrible, unimaginable that you, there's not even a positive yes. one, right? It's just what's the bad, the horrible, the unimaginable. Yep. Um, that, that is uh, probably what a lot of places need to be thinking about, right? Exactly. Now. It is the no good, uh, horrible, very bad day <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I guess at this point in time, and we've definitely learned through this crisis, it's hard to predict anything, but if you could make a prediction right now, Jim and Susan, what are your predictions for what will change in higher education? What might be different for colleges and universities one year from now? Gosh, I I think it's uh, hard to say. I'm tempted to say everything um, because of the lingering social effects of what we've gone through. Uh, it may be hard, even if institutions are able to open, uh, let's say in the spring, everybody's fully back. I think that there will be social uh, uh, concerns and implications going forward. I think for some institutions, there are really existential questions before them. Uh, I think that we may be seeing more mergers and acquisitions uh, I think that there will be lingering financial effects for all institutions we, uh, that will be expressed in things such as lower faculty uh, numbers, lower staff numbers, um, maybe decline in overall budget sizes. Um, I'm hopeful that giving will be up, but I'm pretty sure that state contributions will be down. Uh, and uh, because Jim has the enrollment experience, I'd love to know what he thinks about enrollment. Yeah, I think that um, the choice concept will be much greater. I think that uh, on-demand virtual reality concepts will be absolutely the norm. I, I think it's very interesting to think about how we're seeing 
um, uh, virtual open houses, virtual visit days, all happening that bring students in for a feel of the campus without being there. And I think that will continue. I think choice will be greater. And I think institutions will be required to be more flexible. I think if a student wants to take a semester online, he or she's going to potentially want to do that much more um, uh, easily uh, or is going to seek to do that more easily. And and I think there might be a real uh, migration of back and forth and, and might you go for a semester, go home for a semester, still stay at that institution, go back again uh, for a semester or a year. I think it's going to force uh, some institutions to really rethink their model, about, especially as we know how many students want to have a more hands-on experience. So if you could be taking two courses and be living in an urban area uh, online and getting a, a hands-on experience uh, in some type of internship-like program, I think will be huge. Um, the other thing from the enrollment perspective, more from the retention completion perspective, is how much safety, emotional stress we've seen this generation incredibly stressed out uh, to begin with, anxiety at an all-time reported high, loneliness at an all-time reported high. Um, does this exacerbate that even more? And what will that impact be on enrollment? Um, will students still travel quite as far? Um, uh, data has been suggesting that students have been going more closer to home lately, particularly if you look at uh, underrepresented uh, populations. Will this really push that, uh, that many or most students will now go again to be within 150 miles of home? I think that will, I, I think that we'll see a lot more of that for this upcoming semester. Um, and I think that that might become the norm again, uh, as we were starting to see that uh, circle widen a little bit, but now I think it'll shrink again. One of the questions I'm wondering is if this will have an impact on the summer term. Does the, does the summer term take even more importance, both in terms of catching people up for uh, some time they may have missed, or does it take uh, uh, less importance in the academic calendar? And Jim, on the loneliness question, I've been going back and forth as well. I think that uh, for some of the traditional college student age population, do they feel more isolated when uh, they are not with other 18 to 25 year olds than they do when they're with them? And I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to that question. Great question. Yeah, me, me either. Yeah, me either. And I do think uh, to your point of uh, summer, um, you, you know, seeing how many families have been impacted financially by this will most institutions don't offer summer aid um, and some of those families who maybe were you know good hardworking families at $105,000 are eligible for nothing if one person lost their job they are likely not to sign up for summer school and say you need to wait how much of an impact will that have those are students who aren't currently considered to be high need because the system hasn't worked itself up there um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens for this summer, and do we move into much more flexibility for future summers so that students can catch up if the economy is back in a, in a stronger state a year from now? You know, just uh, two other thoughts. Uh, let's not forget that research has been one of the key activities of our universities, and the funding for research may well uh, decline uh, in a way that makes that uh, much harder to um, support at the, you know, the graduate level. The other question I have is what 
might happen to enrollment in graduate programs as our seniors uh, look at a bleak um, employment uh, landscape? And will they stay in school if there's a graduate program they could go to, get an MBA, maybe, you know, burnish their uh, their skill set a little bit. Uh, so there may be some growth in uh, graduate programs in the face of a bad job market. I certainly think if institutions are smart, they're looking at their current seniors and thinking about what is the right price point to make that happen, uh, to make some revenue versus no revenue. I think that's a great point, Susan. Medical programs as well, really, uh, having some high impacts as well. Um, Jim, Susan, uh, this brings us to the end of the program. I, I would like, however, to give you uh, another opportunity. If there's anything else you'd like to add, uh, any other observations about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the higher education landscape? You know, I think that we are um, proud of institutions' innovation and resilience. And I hope that those uh, characteristics will continue to be driving forces as we go forward. Um, I've been in higher education a long, long time. And if we've ever needed innovation and resilience, I think it's now. Um, we've come to a point where for many institutions, uh, uh, we're not uh, cutting extraneous things. We're looking at mission-related activities that may have to be trimmed back or lost in order to look at um, uh, just continuing to operate. So um, I, I encourage the, uh, the uh, characteristics of resilience and innovation and hope that that'll carry us forward. I, I agree. I have a notepad in front of me. And as you asked that question, I wrote down resilience as well. So it was the first word that came to my mind and adaptable. How how do institutions move to be uh, even further, more adaptable? I think we have lessons to learn from all institutional types out there who have been adaptable. And I think now, how does, how, how does the mass of us um, now take those on and, and implement them on their campuses? I think that Colleges and universities have, have seen a fair share of challenges and land-grant universities themselves were founded during the height of the Civil War and even in adversity, we have uh, seen education, research, and public service as uh, 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 enduring values to this country. And I think resilience, I agree, is not only important, but it's foundational for so many of our institutions. Uh, Jim, Susan, thank you for joining me for this episode of Dukubo in Brief. Thanks, Liz. Thank you.